Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, we are at a rare moment in history in which none of the world's big powers is our adversary. Nina Hachigian and Mona Sutphin, co-authors of The Next American Century, How the U.S. Can Thrive as Other Powers Rise, discuss how the United States should best conduct itself in an age of multiple powers. As the geopolitical framework changes, the superpowers rely on security interdependence more and more, instead of going it alone. Hachigian and Sutphin argue the U.S. should invest more in solving domestic issues and to allow emerging nations to become wealthy with the goal of encouraging global stability. Nina Hachigian is a senior vice president for the Center for American Progress. Monica Sutfin is a managing director at Stonebridge International, a Washington-based international business strategy firm. Both worked at high levels within the Clinton administration, helping to shape American foreign policy in the late 90s. Recorded at NPR West as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is tonight's moderator, Cal Raustiala of UCLA's Berkel Center for International Relations. What I'd like to do to get us started is just ask both of you individually a little bit about why you chose to write this book, what brought you to write it, and why did you write it now? What's motivating you? Well, I was working at RAND, the big think tank that had sort of made its name uh, during the Cold War, and there was a lot of focus there about China's military rise, military power. Then 9-11 happened, and everything just turned on a dime, and China was no longer the problem, um, but terrorists were the problem. But a couple of years later, things started shifting back slowly, and again, there was a lot of attention to China's military prowess. And I thought, you know, that might be right, but it just it cannot be the case that we can go down the same Cold War path again. This is a completely new world. And Mona and I talked about it, and I think, you know, she felt similarly. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues that we had was that we really felt like there wasn't enough discussion about what the rise of these powers really means for American prosperity. People are aware, even though the government has been focused on the Middle East quite a bit, People are aware of the fact of China's rise and India's rise, and nobody really seemed to be talking about it in any serious way about what it meant for American life or for our standard of living. We talked about it, and we, I think, concluded that we thought it was worth trying to do a book on, and luckily people were interested in doing a book on it. So, Great. So in, in the book, one of the things, you make several big points, and I, I think probably the, the biggest point of all is that there are a set of what you call pivotal powers, and these pivotal powers are not threatening to us in the way that many of us uh, perceive them to be threatening. So first, I want to, I guess, hear a little bit more about who these pivotal powers are and how you can know that they're pivotal. One of the points that you make that that struck me was you have this wonderful chart in the book where you you compare the the hysteria over Japan in the 1990s, which probably many of us are familiar with, and the focus on China that you just mentioned. And it's really a a terrific comparison of article titles, book titles, maybe even movie titles, I can't remember, but things that that show the ways in which we've basically just taken the same category and sort of shifted the the title a bit. So given that, how can we be sure that China, for example, is really going to be a major power? And, And how do you know that Japan will continue to be important? And I guess another way to put it is, would your arguments be different or would the world be different if instead Brazil or South Africa or Nigeria becomes a pivotal power? You know, it's interesting. We're not very good at picking out who the pivotal powers are. In the book, we, we make the point that if you go back to just 20 years, you know, we had um, the Soviet Union, obviously, was a threat. They went away. Then you had Japan was a major threat. Then they went away. Then it was um, the EU. It was Germany for a little while. And, you know, even 10 years ago, really, nobody was talking about China. And now it's all China and India and a resurgent Russia. And so part of the argument of our book is that we looked at the powers today as, they, as they've laid themselves out. And we looked at various measures of power. Some of them are very standard measures. But also the desire of the people in the country and the desire of the government to play a role on the global stage. And so we came up with these five powers. Arguably, there could be others further down the road, but I think our framework would hold regardless of who they are. I would just add to that that we, we really don't know, and that's, and that's one of our key messages is that you know, we think of China having, having this trajectory and this infinite you know, 11% growth, and it's just likely not going to be the case. And so we ought to focus on what the threats actually are to Americans today instead. So it's absolutely right that we don't know 10 years from now who the powers are going to be, but I don't think it would change our argument if any of the countries you mentioned were to become as globally um, influential as the powers we did pick. Okay. You mentioned threats, and I think that's one of the critical things to get sort of out on the table. What are the threats? 
that we face? Or what do you see as the primary threats and what are secondary? The way we looked at security was um, the threats to American lives in America, which is not necessarily traditionally how people look at it. But we thought, you know, we have kids. If something from outside is going to harm our kids, we, we call that a threat. So terrorists, especially armed with a nuclear weapon or a nuclear device, and contagious disease, those are the two threats that could kill hundreds of thousands of Americans, and they could do it tomorrow. And then other threats that we looked at were failed states or, and states that have nuclear weapons like North Korea, Iran, maybe decades down the line, as well as uh, climate change, which we think will be in the future quite um, you know, a dramatic threat to uh, American security. And then some of the indirect threats, which is one of the areas where there have been a lot of challenges where we have intervened in the past. We looked at things like the situation in North Korea. There's some indirect threats there. There's the situation across straits between China and Taiwan, which always has the ability to be a flashpoint, although we actually believe that there's lots of room for a negotiated diplomatic solution. So there are kind of, you know, hot spots around the world where you could, in fact, have a clash among the powers. But I think we concluded that it's not inevitable. Some people would argue, well, you know, we have a big power and, you know, as China rises, it's inevitable we're going to go to war with them. And it just, we just didn't see that that was the case. And just one more quick word on state threats. We don't think that any of these big powers could pose a threat anytime soon. But it's not to say that 40 years down the line there couldn't be a sort of Soviet Union-style direct state threat to the United States. It's, it's very unlikely, um, and we can talk about why we think it's very unlikely, but it's, we can't rule it out as a possibility. Sure. And just, just to clarify, the pivotal powers are Japan, China. Right. India. India. Russia. Russia. And Europe, then the EU. Yeah. Okay. yeah, we treat the Europe as, as one mainly because they, you could argue that you could have multiple European powers, but we treat them as one because they're increasingly acting as one. So to go back to the question of threats, I actually found it very refreshing in a way that you, you po- I mean, I also have children. And so it is, it is very natural to think about what are these immediate threats that would, that would cause kind of massive death. And to focus on infectious diseases is, is it's not, you're not the first person to do it, but it's, it's an interesting way to think about uh, the problem of threats and to, to recognize that, in fact, the ways that we think about national security often miss some of these really crucial issues. But if you look at American history and you, and you think about, well, what are, the, what are the things that have caused, it's true we've had contagions like the uh, Spanish flu of 1918, 1919, very deadly around the world. But on the other hand, whether it's World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, all of these major 20th century conflicts, with the partial exception of World War II, in which we did have a direct attack in the sense of an attack on Pearl Harbor, we were drawn in by things that happened elsewhere. And I guess this is what you're mentioning when you say indirect threats. And so we were drawn in, and nonetheless, many, many, many Americans lost their lives as a result of a strategic decision that was made to enter a conflict rather than have the conflict come to us in the way that you just described terrorist attack or, or disease. So is it the right framework to be thinking in terms of these very direct threats, or is it really indirect threats that matter? Well, indirect threats definitely are the flashpoints, um, you know, going back to World War One. you know, and somebody gets shot on a bridge in, in Yugoslavia, and the next thing you know, the whole world is engulfed in conflict. So we, we really see that the world has changed in the way that major powers certainly interact with each other. Most fundamentally, we're all nuclear powers, and so the consequences of direct clash, even if it's through a proxy country, the risks of that and the consequences of that are really unthinkable in in really fundamental ways. But also, a lot of the reasons why people go to war in the past were about resources and controlling territory, and a lot of those issues have fallen by the wayside. They now have commodity markets, so you don't actually have to invade another country to gain access to resources and the like. And so it's not that we don't see that there's the possibility of a clash, but we do think that in this era of um, technological change and globalization, the nature of threats has changed. And actually, we all, as big powers, face the same threats of terrorism, of pandemic disease, of smaller states that now have power to act like big states. And so we have a lot more shared agenda than we used to. And so we think that that will help stave off a direct conflict, although it's obviously always possible. And let me just add to that, that it's not only that we share these threats, but we actually need these big powers in order to keep Americans safe at home. So we talk in the book about security interdependence. I mean, we're used to thinking about economic interdependence, and the newspapers show very clearly how that's uh, taking place today. Our stock market goes down, their stock market goes down, you know, the whole world catches it. But there's now also this idea of security interdependence. I mean, we rely on Britain to arrest suspects so they don't put bombs on airplanes that come to the United States. And India has been tracking Islamic extremist groups for decades, and now we desperately need that information because those groups are no longer just worried about Kashmir. They want to attack Americans. 
China allows our inspectors in their ports to screen shipping containers for potential smuggled nuclear devices. And so it's not abstract that we, ha- that we all you know, are worried about these things. We actually need the other powers in order to keep Americans safe. And disease is another great example. I mean, we have to rely on Russia to stamp out a small outbreak of avian flus before it spreads. Do they see it the same way? I'm convinced that we, we need their assistance. But we're, of course, the top dog, and so we're concerned about remaining top dog. And part of the point of your book is that we will, in fact, remain top dog in many ways, even as these other powers uh, rise and develop more strength and economic success. But do they see it the same way? So, you know, just take China as sort of threat number one, I think, in the minds of many, certainly in Congress. Why would they be concerned or, or spell out a little more what the dynamic is that makes this a reciprocal relationship? You know, I think for different powers, it's different. And I think, you know, the Europeans are right there sharing our agenda. And I think they really, and Japan as well, are very clear that we are this interdependent. I think with China, an example, I mean, economically, obviously, quite interdependent. That's very clear to the Chinese. But even on an issue like North Korea, where North Korea, you know, shares a border with China, but they can't get the problem solved of North Korea's nuclear weapons program without the United States' involvement. Likewise, we can't get it solved without China's involvement. So there are some, I think, clear issues where that sort, of, that sort of relationship becomes clear to the Chinese. And also in terms of what it is that they're looking for, I think there's this presumption. We have a, it's incredibly how strong this zero-sum mentality is in the United States, that if China is rising, somehow the U.S. is falling. But the Chinese, I think, we, we did a lot of interviews with Chinese, and they're just kind of confused, right? About why is America scared of us? Because we have 300 million people who live on less than $2 a day. Everybody in the United States is off doing incredibly well, and here you and we're, we're, we, the Chinese, are focused on our problems here at home. We have, we're not really doing all that much to kind of, you know, have a huge voice on the global stage. And still, you're all worried about it. It makes no sense. In fact, you know, we found across the powers that we interviewed, they are very confused when the United States feels insecure because, of course, they see us as all-powerful. Why <laughs> in God's earth could we ever be, why should we be nervous about anyone, anyone? So it's, you know, this perspective, it's really an issue that we have to deal with more than what the other powers are, are dealing with. You're listening to Nina Hachigian and Mona Sutphin, co-authors of The Next American Century, How the U.S. Can Thrive as Other Powers Rise, with Cal Raustiala of UCLA's Berkel Center for International Relations. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Next time on Day to Day. From New York's financial center to a popular Los Angeles lunch spot. Lots of people face a big decision on Tuesday. Who's their pick for president? I'm still on the side, to tell you the truth. I'm willing to vote either side. It's hosts on both coasts for a super Tuesday sneak peek. This is a very exciting time. Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. Film Week on Air Talk returns to the Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. I'm Larry Mantle inviting you to join me as our Film Week critics will be joining us on stage at the Egyptian for a full conversation on the Academy Awards, our critics' picks, and what they think doesn't deserve to win. Please join us Sunday afternoon, February 10th at 1.30 for Film Week on Air Talk at the Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. Tickets available at the door. The last day before a big election is always a full court press by the candidates and their supporters to get out the message and get out the vote. I'm Pat Morrison. The senior advisors to the leading Republican and Democratic contenders are here with details on how their candidates will resolve the Iraq war and settle the thorny matter of illegal immigration. A last chance for them to make their cases and for you to hear them before you head off to vote on Super Tuesday. Listen in and listen up here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m.
I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Nina Hachigian and Mona Sutkin, co-authors of The Next American Century, How the U.S. Can Thrive as Other Powers Rise, with Cal Raustiala of UCLA's Berkle Center for International Relations. Is it in the nature of power that power is a relative concept? And so, in other words, if as you say, it is a zero-sum, or it's perceived as a zero-sum game. You're suggesting that's inaccurate or anachronistic or something, but it, it seems like there can only be one leader or one top state. And so how is it not the case that it's zero-sum? Well, the thing is, the question is, is what does, what does being the top dog, we get into this, this in the book a lot, which is um, this question of primacy and whether or not you have to continue to be the world's leader by a fixed margin. And that we've been the top dog now for, I guess, 15, 17 years, whatever it is. And it really hasn't helped us achieve really any of our major goals. You know, it led us into a war in Iraq. It hasn't made Afghanistan a functioning democracy. It hasn't helped with North Korea. It really, what does, what is that power? What are we using it for? Right. What, what is the purpose of that power? And so, you know, we kind of came to the conclusion, well, of course, we want to continue to be influential and powerful on the world stage because we care about the direction and fixing global problems. But we actually don't need to be the strongest power by a fixed margin. That's kind of sets up a false trade off. I think what we, and what we tried to do instead was to look at actually how these powers affected really concretely American security, American prosperity and our values. And so if you look at you know, in a, in a sort of a concrete way, you find that the rise of these other powers doesn't really harm those things. And what we think is more important than American primacy is American leadership, because it's the case that relatively we might be less influential because there'll be more power sharing the stage, but our leadership is absolutely essential because none of these problems are going to get solved unless we are really engaged and we bring these powers around the table. I mean, we have been the leader. We know how to do it. Um, there's a certain skill set involved, and I think the last seven years have not demonstrated those very well. But, but you know, if, if we marshal the energy of these powers and if we leverage their power instead of fearing it, you know, we can actually make progress toward a world that's better for, for all of us. And they also, just to add to that, which is also that we, we also examined, you know, it turns out that the powers themselves, we have a better relationship with each of them, and they are somewhat worried about, you know, that the Japanese look at China's rise nervously, and even though, you know, it seems like it's all nice and warm between Russia and China and India, there's still some lingering distrust there. So we really, because of our geographical location, we really can play that kind of broker role that people want us to play. I mean, it's, you know, we heard this time and again when we interviewed Europeans that they're, when is the United States going to show up? And of course, they're worried that at the outgrowth of Iraq will be, the conclusion will be, well, we don't just don't want to engage at all, which for them, they see is more damaging than even being engaged in an unproductive way is for us to just pull back. It sounds like what you're saying is that you, you see the pursuit of power by the United States as something that's obviously to some degree natural. States are going to pursue power. The problem is that we've tried to pursue too much power, you call it primacy, that we wanted to be, we wanted to have primacy by a certain margin, and in fact, too much. And what we really need to do is pull back a little bit, not necessarily cede leadership, but share it. Is that a fair characterization? We, we really advocate for a strong United States and that we actually have a lot of work to do at home to fix our domestic problems, which will then allow us to be strong. So I don't think we have any sense that America should be weaker or pulled back or anything like that, but that we shouldn't make the central point of our foreign policy to maintain our lead. That should not be the focus because that inevitably means that you are you don't want other countries to grow. At the end of the day, that's what it means. And that's just not a message that, it's a message that gets in the way of the cooperation that we actually need. American foreign policy cannot be that poor countries should stay poor, right? For 50 years, we've been preaching that, well, you need to have open markets and you need to do these things with your government. You need to do all these things. Governments are now actually doing that and it's working for them and they're growing. And now all of a sudden we're saying, well, no, 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 don't do that. So you know, we can't have it both ways, and we just have to get used to the idea that, yes, there are going to be countries that have significant power. It is not going to feel comfortable for us because we're used to pretty much doing what we want when we want. It's just the reality of, of life on this planet at this time. So. Well, I want to turn to some of the specific things you mentioned, including values, but I just want to ask one more question on this issue of primacy because I think it's so central. It's one of the things that makes your book interesting, and it's also, as you point out, it cuts against the grain of what I think is a large swath of thinking perhaps on the part of the public, we, I, we can come to that, but certainly on the part of leadership in the United States. So why is it, in the past, we normally think of transitions in power. So when, when historians look at the transition from one great power to another, 
usually accompanied by a war, often accompanied by a war. And so in this context, you seem to be suggesting we shouldn't anticipate such a war as power shifts in various ways. Why is that? What is it that's... You mentioned weapons a moment ago. Is that the only thing, or is there something else that's... Well, it's also that, I mean, getting back to our first discussion, you could pick the wrong power. I mean, there's lots of historic examples of people preparing for the threat that they believed was coming down the pike instead of actually the threat that did show up. If you tailor your response anticipating a particular kind of threat and something else pops up over here, you end up finding yourself really ill-prepared to deal with the threats that are out there. And it is true that right now the globe is very much in flux in terms of power. And so part of our argument is let's be strong at home, let's keep our military strong, let's keep investing in our country, and let's keep an eye out basically for potential outcomes, but not necessarily directed at particular powers. A couple other factors are, for example, there was a certain amount of economic interdependence before World War I, but nothing like we have today. I mean, we have incredible we, you know, we actually own pieces of each other's economies, all these big powers. So that's another factor that probably, you know, it doesn't mean it would prevent a war, but it would probably reduce the incentives for a war or raise the costs of a war. And similarly, we, just, we talked earlier about the security interdependence. So if we go to war with China, that means, you know, we're going to have to worry about the shipping, you know, the you know, shipping containers coming to the U.S. and, you know, what's smuggled in them, et cetera, so, or the North Korea's nuclear program. So we have to forfeit some amount of security cooperation if we actually end up, you know, engaged in a conflict. And that's another thing that's different. You sometimes hear these stories, sort of science fiction stories, in which there's an alien attack and the world kind of organizes together. And there's a strain of that in discussions about non-state actors and these asymmetric threats like terrorist attacks in which then suddenly the powerful states of the world have an incentive to join in they wouldn't otherwise have. So one wonders what would happen if that would go away. It would be a nice problem, I suppose, to have. But right. We interviewed Brent Scowcroft for the book, and he got it at that point. And he was you know, saying that this new security interdependence, it really is a fundamental change in international relations, the equivalent of the Industrial Revolution, that states can no longer protect their citizens inside their own borders by themselves. And we are going to continue to feel the impact of that reality on the way states interact with each other and their incentives to cooperate with each other. And you could end up in a situation where it's really you want strong states and the strong states kind of band together against all these forces of chaos that are out there. I mean, climate change could be that alien. Climate change is right, I mean, a perfect if, example. Right. If, if not all the powers are working together to prevent it, it's, you know, it's coming our way. Right. So you mentioned a few things earlier. So just to, to, to make this more concrete, perhaps. So let's think about China. And let's think about values, right? So you mentioned concern with our values. And in the case of China, I think there's a sense. So today, I think it was in today's New York Times, an op-ed by Nick Kristof talking about the genocide Olympics and the idea that this Olympics this summer would be one that, unless China changed its ways, would be tarred by this concern with the genocide in Sudan that China is facilitating, or or at least not doing what it could to stop. And many people have pointed out this problem, that the Chinese government is willing to fund things that not only individual countries in the West might not fund, but that the IMF and the bank and so forth, World Bank, won't fund. So is it true that China is operating in a way that's consistent with our values. And why, why isn't it reasonable to think that, in fact, as China grows stronger, it will want to shape the world in a way that's more in accord with one of its primary values, which seems to be non-intervention and the idea that other countries should keep their hands off of internal, what they view as internal affairs? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, China, well, first of all, we don't like how they treat their people at home. And they're, you know, vast human rights abuses of various kinds, and that's just a fact. And we don't like how they are propping up certain dictatorships around the world. But they are not trying to spread their ideology anywhere else. It's all about just show me the money. I mean, the, all, the, the, the deal in Sudan and everywhere else, whether it's with a democratic country or a non-democratic country, it's just we need your oil, we need your copper, we need your iron ore, and that's their bottom line. And we don't like that, but it's not the same as the Soviet Union. We have to be really clear about that. They're not trying to come up with a counter-ideology. And in terms of non-intervention... Can I just ask, why yeah. is that significant? So I understand the Soviet Union had an ideology that they were trying to propel outwards, just as we tried to, and successfully did. But why does it matter if their ideology is kind of a non-ideology, and what they, what they say is, well, we don't really care about human rights. We don't really care about how, if, if a genocide occurs, it's not our problem. Why isn't that equally threatening, or I mean, equally morally problematic for us as a nation? 
I mean, it, it, is, it is morally problematic. It's, I don't think it's as morally problematic as trying to, you know, get another country to adopt a system that we don't agree with and that with a specter of the whole world becoming that system. I think that's just, it's quite different. And the fact is on Sudan, if we wanted to fix Sudan, we'd fix Sudan. And China would not step in our way. And China wouldn't be able to stand in our way. China's been doing some things behind the scenes that, you know, you could argue they've, they, in the reason that peacekeepers are allowed in is because of some negotiations that China's done. But the fact is, we don't see eye to eye on values. We just don't. But it's, it's not the same as, as an ideological aggressor in the world. Right. And the, and the other piece of that is that it's very difficult for us to do a whole lot about it. This is one of the downsides of having stronger powers, which is we would like countries to not do things that we don't agree with. And just like, you know, if the Russians came up and said, well, we don't like your use of the death penalty in the United States, most Americans will say, well, who, who cares what you think? And increasingly, that's what the Chinese and the Russians are saying to us. They don't really care, and they know that we really do have a limited ability to impact what it is ultimately they're, they're going to do. We can decide if we wanted to you know, boycott the Olympics over Sudan. It would be counterproductive. We would probably be the only country that would do it, so you'd end up with an Olympics that would happen without Americans involved. It would set off a whole negative slew of things in our relationship and really take it off kilter and ruin that very cooperation that we need on lots of other things. So we agree. It's a, it's a difficult problem that we have, and a lot of it also, at the end of the day, comes down to the fact that we have, at the end of the Cold War, we really stepped aside and kind of left sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America to kind of fend for themselves. And, you know, the Chinese have stepped into that leadership vacuum and, you know, are willing to build roads and build ports and do all this infrastructure spending that, you know, these are countries that are really struggling, right? And the idea that somebody's going to want to come and build a road, of course, the answer is going to be yes. And if we don't like that, then we need to kind of get in the game and, and try to get involved and and act the way we want to act, and we'd probably have people following us as well. It doesn't mean you shouldn't use the leverage of the Olympics to try to get something done, because, you know, this is China's big coming out party, right? So it, it makes sense to try to, you know, get as many problems solved that you'd like to get solved with Chinese help as you can and use that as, as, as a lever. To come back a little bit to something we talked about before, but in the same context of, of kind of seeding a different set of values or, or letting, a, letting more, I guess, diversity in values appear in the international system, I mean, if you look at Great Britain, one of the interesting things about the transfer of power from the UK in the early 20th century to the United States, kind of late 20th century, is it was a very, it was a peaceful transition, first of all, but it was one in which there was a shared kind of cultural and I, I think a shared set of values between the two countries. For the most part, they differed over some things. Britain wanted to keep its empire. We didn't want them to keep their empire. But aside from that, there was a lot of common ground. With the U.S. and China, and again, just to pick China as kind of public enemy number one in the, you know, in the traditional mindset... There obviously isn't that. We just talked about that. Is it reasonable to think that we are going to end up something like Great Britain? And if that's true, isn't that a problem, or shouldn't that be viewed as a problem? So what I mean by that is, by the 70s, Great Britain went from being a country that in 50 years earlier had controlled 25% of the globe, and then became a kind of middle-rate power that, you know, yes, had nuclear weapons, and yes, had a vote on the UN Security Council, but didn't really command the respect at all that it had before. Its standard of living went down and a whole series of other sort of political declines set in. So is that something that we can anticipate for the United States? And, and if not, how do we forestall that? Um, I mean, part of the reason that, the, that Great Britain did decline that way is that they really stopped innovating in their economy. If you look at, you know, the reason they excelled and they did end up controlling, you know, a quarter of the world, actually more than that, I think, at one point, they were the, the home of the Industrial Revolution. But they had one big problem, which is their education system was really weak. So the second phase of the Industrial Revolution, when science-based innovation and economic uh, innovation became the norm, they were really caught flat-footed because they didn't invest at home in their education system. So they found themselves ill-prepared to deal with the United States and Germany and these other powers that really did have this strong science base. So the lesson isn't, I don't think so much about what happens with China, but it's the dangers of what happens if you don't invest at home and you kind of rest on your laurels assuming you're going to be rich and powerful forever. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I just read last week Britain's standard of living just overtook America's for the first time. <laughs> so, and, and just, I mean, just to add to that, you know, we, our, the message of the book isn't you don't have to do anything, don't worry, kick back, these powers aren't going to be a problem. It's really you got to invest at home, and and that's not easy for us. We, you know, we are not solving these problems we need to solve, healthcare and education and and uh, you know many others. Let's follow that on a little bit because I think that is one of the interesting things that comes out in your book is that you you in essence 
in the end, you have a kind of an international focus that you start off with, but your remedies end up being very domestic in nature. And obviously that ties in with what's happening right now in the presidential election, thinking about well, what is it the United States needs to do, healthcare being an obvious one. So say a little more about that. What are the things that you see as as most pressing, most useful. It was a really interesting part about writing the book and very surprising that every time we went down the path trying to find the, the real root cause of a problem that we tend to blame on one of the big powers, it more often than not came back to something that we need to do. So getting some kind of a national health care system is critical. First, because it allows entrepreneurs to leave their you know corporate jobs and start businesses. We talked to a number of people who didn't do that because they didn't have health care. It provides some cushion for workers who are losing their jobs. So that's one, one idea. The second is some kind of set of programs that are, that are going to help work our workers through the transition. Because even though it's a small number of jobs that are getting offshored to, to these countries, you know those people are really hurting. And so we should have things like wage insurance that protect them if the next job they get doesn't pay as well. 401k plans on top of Social Security and you know a couple of things like that. But I think most fundamentally is investing in our innovative economy um, and invest, you know, getting our children to do better in science and in math. I was just reading about how, you know, it was a national outrage in Japan that they went from number one, you know, 15-year-olds tested in science and math to like number six or something. And we are at number, you know, somewhere between 25 and 34 out of 57 countries that were surveyed by the OECD. I mean, it's just, it's sad. (laughs) And the thing is, we had been importing, of course, a lot of our talent, right? You have PhDs in, you know, Silicon Valley, people coming in from all over the place. But post 9-11, that's become a lot harder just at the moment that, China and India and Russia and elsewhere, you know, even the Singapores and the Koreas, they're all of a sudden a much more attractive place to do this kind of science research. And so researchers that decided, you know what, it's just not worth doing it, fighting the fights in the United States, whether it's over creationism and limits on terms of what science can do here, but also just restrictions in terms of getting scientists here. So people have opted to go elsewhere. And this will be a much more competitive world with these other powers as they gain clout. And so we kind of need to marshal all the resources we possibly can. And I think we're very hopeful that if we do that, we can actually excel and be just fine because we do have quite a lead. And there are many things about our culture and its openness and its creativity that are unique to the United States and its constant replenishment of, of talent that are really unique. So we just need to marshal those resources. You're listening to Nina Hachigian and Mona Sutfin, co-authors of The Next American Century, How the U.S. Can Thrive as Other Powers Rise, with Cal Raustiala of UCLA's Berkel Center for International Relations. This is Socolo Radio, the on-air home of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socolola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, Nina Hachigian and Mona Sutfin take questions from the Socolo audience. Stay tuned to Socolo Radio. Next in our series, In Character. He was unforgettable. I'm the Sheik of Araby. But what was it about the Sheik that made women swoon? and men envious. You have to credit Valentino. I mean, it was his persona that established that image. A sex symbol from silent film. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Cohn. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Remember the good old days? This is Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Bank of America has announced that it... Good afternoon. I'm Pat Morrison. It's something of an article of faith in business in Southern California that the cost of doing... More NPR and local news on 89.3 KPCC. Next time on Day to Day, from New York's financial center to a popular Los Angeles lunch spot. Lots of people face a big decision on Tuesday. Who's their pick for president? I'm still on the side to tell you the truth. I'm willing to vote either side. It's hosts on both coasts for a super Tuesday sneak peek. This is a very exciting time. Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. 
Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff. You just have it. We can shock them a little too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoons starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's time for questions from the Socalo audience for Nina Hachigian and Mona Sutfin, co-authors of The Next American Century, How the U.S. Can Thrive as Other Powers Rise. Given the uh, huge preponderance of our military budget, we have more than the world combined, combined with our uh, need for absolute security, apparently. Do you think that power leads to the temptation to use it too readily and that we think of all these countries in terms of military threats and even global warming, what's the coming fight going to be, and that we're too casual about it? This administration does, but I don't think it's necessarily the case that every administration, given a large military, would necessarily want to be using it all the time. But we certainly say in the book that we have to spend a lot more of our national security dollars not on the military, but on you know other other forms of diplomacy and training programs and exchange programs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and also I think you know Iraq has really taught us a lesson about the limits of military power, in ways that I think are going to continue to stay with us for for a long, long time. And so I think people will hesitate a lot more before committing ourselves to those kinds of endeavors. So I think we've learned a very painful lesson, you know, both in dollars and blood in in that way. And frankly, given, given where we are in Iraq, we're just not going to have a military we're going to be able to use too much for some time to come. Hi, my name is Todd Kerner. One thing that certainly sets China apart from the rest of the world, or much of the world, is religion. And certainly when you're talking about existential threats to our population, religion is a main force behind that. To what extent was religion part of your analysis in terms of where the world powers are? Well, you know, religion came up really in the context of when we were examining the threats and the fact that the terrorism threat is so much more of a potent, immediate threat to Americans and the fact that we really don't understand it very well because it is driven by a different, you know, philosophy about the way people should lead their lives and how society should be organized and whether or not a nation state in fact should even exist outside a religious context. So we did look at it through that through that lens, not so much the powers themselves because we found that they're actually quite pragmatic at the end of the day. It's not really a factor, but we need to spend a lot more time understanding the, the people in fact who are trying to kill us for reasons that are that are quite religiously driven. I agree with that. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> <laughs> Who did you poll and how did you poll them? We didn't actually do polling ourselves, but we looked at a lot of polls that have been done over the years, different organizations, you know, Zogby and the BBC and, you know, a whole host of them. And so we relied on other people's polls, but they were all very consistent in finding that Americans were willing to share power. If you ask Americans, you know, what their ideal form of government is, system led by one or two powers or more of a consortium or, you know, and I think the last question was something like through the UN, they tended to pick, the the majority of Americans tended to pick the second that, that they didn't see that America ought to be ruling the world, that America really ought to engage with the world. And what's interesting about that polling is it also goes back, we went back decades to the 70s. So it's not that, because a lot of people ask the question, well, you know, post-Iraq, of course, people want to cooperate more, and that's natural. And, of course, you do see an increase in that as a result of, of the war. But this is true going back to 70s and 80s, I mean, consistently throughout the last 35 years. So, Hello, my name is Anthony Clifton. And is a political settlement between China and Taiwan possible that allows Taiwan to maintain its current political status? Um, I think so. China-Taiwan is, you have to be very careful about exactly the precise words you use. So I don't think that that'll be a settlement where it can keep its exact same status. But I think there are a huge range of solutions that could work for both parties concerned. And you could lead to a peaceful outcome. This is also one of these places there's about to be an election in Taiwan where over time their integration, I mean, they have I think people think that there's no interaction at all whatsoever between Taiwan and China, which is just not the case at all. There's lots of 
cross straits interaction. And most people you talk to, if there isn't a clash kind of in the near term, that Taiwan will get resolved over time because the linkages between the two are getting stronger over time. And so it is one of these ones that probably will get resolved, you know, with, with time. And the, the party that is more interested in sort of in being less independently minded, it just won a large victory in the parliament. So that also counsels for perhaps um, stabler times ahead. My name is Jay Ellis. As we look back in history and contemplate the rise and fall of various nations, I'm remembering the cliche about Japan. Is it a rising sun or is it a, a setting sun? And as we look at the horizon of what we're going to be facing in the next uh, decades, wouldn't you agree that limited resources and finite resources such as oil and water are possibly going to play a much more influential role than than city-states like China or Iran's nuclear ambitions, etc.? Yeah, I mean, this resource constraints, it's interesting. I mean, on the oil front, a lot of people see that as, as a place for clashing among the powers, people in the world generally. We don't actually necessarily see that that's the case because oil is a commodity, you know, so obviously the price goes up as people demand more of it. But the idea China is busily, has busily gone out and tried to buy up oil fields here and there in an elusive quest for energy security, which in fact is not going to work and is going to be very expensive for them, and they're starting to realize that. But what the high price of oil does do is it does create room to come up with alternative energy. So we're at this moment, I think, in the United States where the stars are aligned. We're coming out of a difficult and costly war in the Middle East. The price of oil is very high. There's a demand because of climate change to move into a new economy. So I think you could see, at least on the energy front, a move away from oil and a move you know, to deal with this collectively because, of course, we all need energy. It's not fair. We can't have to say, well, China, you can't have any energy or any other state for that matter shouldn't. Water, you know, as we have more people on the planet, I think is a looming crisis for the planet to deal with. And how we manage that one, I think, is going to be even more difficult, actually, than oil because oil is already a commodity, so you can buy it on the market for a fixed price. But water is a resource that people feel they own, countries own. And so what happens to – you see that even, I'm sure, in California, but you see it in the Midwest a lot. I'm from Wisconsin – and, you know, people want to use Great Lakes water, and the answer from states in the Midwest is, well, you better move to Wisconsin or Michigan, because if you want to use our water, that's where it is, right? So this, there is a dynamic about resource constraints, but I don't necessarily know that it plays into kind of clashes among the powers. What's clear is that global warming is going to make all those things worse, so that we really have to, I mean, the next administration really has to hit the ground running and making a transition to a low-carbon economy. And we have to do that not only for ourselves, but we have to do that because if we don't take the lead, there's just no way China or India is going to try to start limiting their growth. Um, because if, you know, something like 80% of the carbon in the atmosphere is, is ours, is, you know, from us. And we're the country that's rich, and so we really have to take a stand in order to get the rest of the world to follow. Randy Gold. Um, on the issue of educating our electeds and other decision makers, um, I personally have been very involved with that in the last few years. Um, Good for you. Thank you. It's, it's very difficult. But I really want to get at the issue of framing an argument and how you use language, because something that Nina said just rang a bell in my mind. And I said, I have to ask about this. Because how you frame an argument basically works both ways. You frame an argument to convince your electeds that the public believes something or that something is true in the same way that the electeds will try to frame an argument to convince the public that something is needed. Now, four times, I believe, the term global warming was used twice. Nina used the term climate change twice. What I've seen is climate change is the term that's used by people that either deny it or say we can't do anything about it. You know, actually, the term that I like best, which I really just should be using all the time and we used in the book, is climate crisis. Because I actually think that's the right terminology, and sometimes I just slip up. <laughs> but, I think, but I think that is the right term, and I do buy that, that words matter and, and all that. So I think that's what we should be using. If I might just say a word on that... I I think one of the issues with climate change is that... Climate crisis. Or climate crisis. Well, <laughs> put that aside for a <laughs> Climate crisis is a good innovation. The appeal of climate change has been that for many people, <laughs> global warming sounds good. Right? It sounds like an attractive thing to certain people. If you live in Canada, if you live in... <laughs> I'm not going to... If you live in Russia, and, and the... 
The economic studies back this up. These countries will benefit from climate change. It's also, scientists like it, because it's, it's accurate, because climate change is, in fact, a multifaceted thing. It's not just about warming. Climate crisis has a nifty, zingy quality that the scientists might not love, but we I think agree? could be climate more. we all agree? Climate crisis. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. My name is Bijan. Thank you for coming. You just were talking about people, and one of my questions is that you talk about we. We need to do these things. Besides talking to your representatives, what can we do as citizens of the United States, as global citizens, to participate on an everyday interaction? Well, Great question. Yeah. Go ahead. No. Oh, I was going to say um, a couple of things. If you can afford it, I would go visit some of these countries or try to find a way to get to some of these countries even if you can't afford it. So I think that's something that if more Americans were to go to China and just see what it's like, and same with India and same with Russia, I think that would be wonderful. And in fact, our legislators need to go too because, you know, <laughs> I'm embar- I, I don't know the number of con- Congress people who have been to China, but it's a small number. And then, you know, what's nice about our technological revolution is that regular people can really be involved in the debate, blogs and websites. And I mean, people pay attention to that stuff. And you can just be some person sitting in your living room in your underwear and, and actually make a difference because, you know, you write compellingly and you're just in China and hear the pictures. And that's what I would suggest. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And also, I mean, really hold your elected officials to to take them to task, because one of the things we found time and again is congressional members will say, yeah, you know, I think about the UN's great, whatever, global warming, sorry, climate crisis, oops, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. But what they will say is, but Americans don't vote on international issues. Americans don't care about these issues. They will, if you give them a choice, you know, I can vote against the Kyoto Protocol or be against it. And, you know, as long as I give them a tax cut at the end of the year, nobody will care. It is an incumbent upon Americans to challenge that and say, no, actually, we, we do actually care. And we are going to vote as we see the world. And I think that people, you know, that can take then the micro impact of, of what's happening, you know, in a more integrated world and take it up to the, to the elected. So it does really matter engaging with your elected officials and sending those emails and writing the letters and all, even making the calls. So that's what I'd suggest. Hi, Bruce Murray. You were talking about terrorism and other external threats. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about risk assessment. For example, in the age of orange alerts, one might think that the greatest threat we face is from terrorism or some other external threat when, in fact, uh, especially on a night like tonight, we face a much greater threat out there on the road, being in a traffic accident or uh, bioterrorism, it, it seems scary, but things like heart disease and, and cancer pose a much greater threat. So I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about risk assessment, risk analysis, and what Americans, it seems, have a, a misplaced notion of these concepts. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the thing, is that obviously we see terrorism, when you look at it from a foreign policy lens, from a national security lens, you have to look at threats that could, you know, kind of kill lots of Americans in large, large numbers, right? So a traffic accident is not going to do that, right? Although it, you're absolutely right, you know, that risk is much, much greater. And so that's why we come out with terrorism, because it is, there are people out there who are definitely intent on figuring out ways to kill Americans in large numbers. And so it is a threat that we have to take seriously, and it's one that's real, that's here. But the, the, one of the problems we have about it is that the discourse now has been all about fear, and that's also not good, right? It's fear used as a political tool to get Americans nervous about what's going to happen to them on a daily basis. And so, you know, there's a balance there that needs to be struck. And it's very frustrating to, you know, we, we were in government when al-Qaeda was around and we were focused on it a lot. America, we didn't talk about it a lot then. That was before 9-11. But we knew that there was this serious threat out there. And lately, the tendency has been to talk about it and use it to fearmonger rather than actually doing things about it. And so that's, you know, in, in terms of risk assessment, that's one key piece. And then I'm sure you'll talk about pandemic disease, which is... Yeah. Bigger. Well, actually, yeah. what I was going to say is that, you know, we limited ourselves. We thought about this question a lot, but we limited ourselves to those things that, that come from outside the country, basically, because we're looking at it from a national security point of view. So you're absolutely right. Like driving and heart disease and, you know, those are, those are the things that kill a lot, the most Americans. But those are within our control most of the time. Well, you know, more or less. So we were, we were looking at things that, came, that come from outside, basically. Paradoxically, it seems like one of your big points is, in fact, the things that come from outside are in our control through what we do here. So there's a way in which the distance between the sorts of threats that he's pointing to and the sorts that you look at is actually not as great as we might think. Right. 
Although, you know, with avian flu or with, with terrorism, it's really the, the network of countries that are going to be protecting each other, you know, because we, we need intelligence assets in places where we just don't have people, but other countries do, and we can share that, you know, that, that information. Hi, my name is Daniel Florek, and on the education side, you've indicated that it's difficult to get children into the sciences, for example, which is a, a difficult subject. And I'd like to know how we can motivate children as long as we're paying $25 million a year to some guy to throw baskets or $3 million a year to some lawyer to stand up in a court. How do you get a kid to say, you know, I really do have to know algebra and trigonometry and calculus and everything that goes into being a scientist? That's, that's a great question. I mean, I think having great teachers is a lot of it. And I think we've had 25 years of recommendations of how to improve our education system. And we, we know we just haven't taken it seriously enough. But one of, one of them that's consistent is having great teachers. I mean, I was a biology major in undergrad. And um, it's because I had a great high school biology teacher, not because I thought I would ever do anything with biology in my career. I could potentially have continued, you know, continued along that line. And I think that's, that's one of the things. And then holding up, you know, role models, you know, it's not it's not so much in the in the American psyche to hold up scientists as role models. I think we could do more of that. Yeah, but we do have the Bill Gates of the world and the Steve Jobs of the world and things like that. That people are who, um, you know, it's a good thing. I think that we have those role models. You know, that everybody always says, you know, the nerds that have done incredibly well in our economy. It does create the potential for people to head down that path. I, I think the biggest challenge we have is for the vast majority of kids. I mean, there are only going to be so many Bill Gates in the world, let's be clear. And the question is, as jobs become more technical for kids to do, how do you, how do you educate the vast majority of people who just, you know, are going to go out and get a job doing something? And what is that something going to be? Chances are it's going to be a lot more technical than, you know, even when we grew up or and certainly, you know, our parents' generation. So that's, that's, I think, the real challenge is just to get all that down down to just the basic level. You've been listening to Nina Hachigian and Mona Sutphin, co-authors of The Next American Century, How the U.S. Can Thrive as Other Powers Rise, with Cal Raustiala of UCLA's Berkle Center for International Relations. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socolo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stenshold. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. Programming is supported by...